Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevola, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. It's been my absolute pleasure to be joined by a diverse group of thinkers and doers as we explore how we can create meaningful human experiences and make mindful decisions in the age of AI. In this episode, I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Mark Kugelberg. Mark is a professor of philosophy of media and technology and the vice dean of philosophy and education at the University of Vienna. Mark joins us to discuss the philosophical and political underpinnings of AI. Welcome, Mark. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. So tell us a little bit about what drew you to the study or to studying the intersection of the humanities and philosophy in particular with technology. Mm -hmm. I was doing more sort of standard philosophy before, and then I, you know, I, I've always been interested in societal issues. And um, I figured out that, that, you know, some of the most pressing societal issues are very much linked to technology. Um, so I started researching that um, and got involved in some more hands-on practical ethics projects. And, and that's how I slowly moved into this field and then read up on, on philosophy of technology and, um, and started contributing to that field. Well, you have been a prolific contributor. You have an absolute wealth of research projects and an amazing number of books on the topic. And we could spend, I think, literally hours on each one of them. So I'm wondering instead if we could maybe just get a bit of a recap of the narrative arc or what some of the different problems are you were interested in as you moved from things like human being at risk, which if memory serves us back from like 2013 through to like new romantic cyborgs to more recent work on AI ethics and the political philosophy of AI. Is there a common narrative thread or research arc that has gone from A to Z there? Well, I've, I've always been interested in a number of topics and existential issues um, is, is still one of my interests, like in, in the book on self-improvement, for example, or in a, in a forthcoming one. But yeah, I, I, I think what I did was moving from um, more theoretical discourse to uh, practical, ethical and political issues about um, emerging technologies. And yeah, uh, first it was robotics always, and 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 then um, artificial intelligence proved to be a very fruitful area of inquiry. Um, and I think <laughs> it's still philosophically interesting too. And recently, you wrote about the political philosophy of AI, and and I, you and I connected over some of that writing. What is political philosophy? What is the problem space or the hypothesis that that explores? I guess the most uh, broad definition of, of um, political philosophy would be that it's about power, because often it's it's narrowly defined as being about states and their relation to citizens. But I think it's um, yeah, it can be defined much broader, influenced by Foucault, for example, um, and 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 that's also the approach I take in the book, and and even. I take it even broader by by saying, um, well, you know, is it is it really about humans, or do other entities also have um, have politics, or or should our politics be relevant to them somehow? Is our politics relevant? 
so I, so yeah, I, I work with a broad definition. At the same time, I, I do use traditional theory, more limited theory as well, uh, because I think it's good to to um, to make always that bridge between, on the one hand, the traditional theories, and and on the other hand, the the very contemporary problems that we we face today, and that we most likely will face in the near future. So let's talk a little bit about that bridge between some of those maybe more traditional theories and the contemporary problems of AI. It's striking in some of your writings, I believe, you've said that AI, and and this may be applicable to technology in more broadly, but that AI is inherently political. So when we say AI or technology is is inherently political, what do we mean by that? What is, again, what is politics in this context? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, we usually think about technologies as tools, as instruments, as things we use for goals. It could be political goals. But in fact, when we use technology, we, um, we do much more. We, we are actually influenced by the tool we, we are using. For example, if you're, if you're a social movement and you're using social media, it's not like you have a tool um, like a hammer that you completely control and you know exactly mm-hmm. what you're doing and you know your goal, uh, like putting in a nail and you're using your instrument and that's it. What's actually happening with, with the technologies we have today is that you, you don't really know what's going to happen. So you might use social media initially to push your mes- message uh, but then the recommender systems and and all the uh, you know all the operational stuff that has to do with with the algorithms how they work um, is going to spread your message perhaps globally and change a lot of things and and that's not completely under your control so the technology has all these effects non intended effects and and they're political because they um, change the way we live together they um, are also political in the narrow sense of uh, having influence on elections but they they also really change the the relationships in society um and and so in that sense it's it's definitely non-instrumental and and political but recently spoke with roger spitz I, i don't know if you're familiar with him and you know he said one of the areas he thinks about and and is most concerned about is somewhat hidden influence where systems are influencing human decisions in ways that we're not even aware of. So not so much the decisions that we allow systems to make autonomously, but the decisions we delegate to machines that then influence our own behavior. And so I get a little bit of that same thread in what you're talking about. In that world where cause and effect are maybe not, there's not a direct link, you may not understand the implications or next order implications or effects of something that you're putting out in the world using or through technology. How does political philosophy then help us understand or frame those issues in a way that we can better understand and then think about addressing them? Yeah, it offers some concepts, and the difference is that usually we just shout these concepts at other people, especially on social media, but we <laughs> don't really think about what they mean. And um, and so what it allows is a more differentiated um, discussion. For example, about freedom, you know, people feel often 
threatened in their freedom and um, they might be even right but they don't always know what kind of freedom and maybe you know one one person's freedom um, is the, the you know, lack of freedom of, of someone else and this kind of issues they, they they come up and they should be discussed but people don't have the vocabulary to discuss them in a more sophisticated way and I think that's that's what political philosophy can do that it can give us sort of more of a, a refined framework to um, to have these discussions and to to also move on to to better understand what's going on and and then also to better articulate and argue for one's own position can you give us some examples of some of those concepts that are are maybe a little too esoteric or or conceptual and how framing that with political philosophy how does that actually change the narrative mm-hmm. Yeah, one example is when people say that um, AI is biased, mm-hmm. and um, usually it's like sort of assumed. And okay, then we just know what it is. Like when someone says it's biased, but whether something is biased, and even if it is biased, whether that bias is problematic or not, is very much a political question. And mm-hmm. what political philosophy can contribute here is saying like, well. Here are these different theories of justice, and with these theories of justice, we can clarify um, what exactly is wrong uh, with with this bias. And um, yeah, I think through through making more explicit and outlining the arguments, one can then have have a real more you know more more profound discussion with other people. Whereas otherwise it's just my, like my opinion against your opinion, yeah, that, that's that's a frustrating kind of thing to do, and we don't we don't really move on, and we have just this like social media discussions without further depth to them. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing that in practice out in the world today that people are taking on this perspective and, and using? the tenets of things like political philosophy to help forward these discussions? Or are we still stuck in this never-ending and escalating opinion bubbles that that we all have? There, I think there's still a lot of that. Um, I'd like to see a lot more refined arguments for why certain things are wrong. Uh, for example, I'm working now on, on uh, democracy and AI and I think there we really need to be um, more explicit about what what do we mean by democracy? You know, mm-hmm. is it just like voting every so much years, or or is it more? What is it then, and and why is AI a problem for that, um, or or even an opportunity? Um, and I, th- I think there, I just see that people, yeah, lack the background in political philosophy, and I, th- I think there would be good to bring that in. And in this way, I think we can have a, a discussion about both technology and politics, and 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 I think that's um, you know that, that's that's a good thing um, if if we can do that. Um, and you see, for example, in the in the current discussions about you know is it is it the gun that's the problem or the 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 person, for example, of, of course, a very familiar discussion now. I think there the. the both philosophers of technology and political philosophers, I think if they work together, they can, you know, give more a more interesting view on on this question. Um, philosophers of technology can can show that that guns are not just guns; that they have like uh, this more than instrumental role. 
that they really shape uh, how people deal with one another and and political philosophers can um can sketch sort of the the more political framework within which it is possible for for um you know people to say that that it's their freedom to carry guns uh, even in the light of what's happening now so so I think it's it's really helpful to have both disciplines and um, and to work together to to better understand what's going on and then also to to make better normative arguments. It would seem that then that also allows us to take, for lack of a better word, some of the emotion out of the discussion as well, because you don't necessarily have to come to a singular point of view you can you can look at it from a lot of different angles and and perhaps in the confluence of those those angles or the old Venn diagram find some points of commonality that you might not otherwise do if someone's coming just from one perspective of the tools the tool for instance and you know a tool in and of itself is is incapable of harm it's it's the person who wields it and then somebody else saying well the person couldn't wield it if if the tool didn't exist all right when you're having the conversation just solely from those those viewpoints, it's almost impossible, I think, to compromise. Yeah, yeah, it, it helps to find uh, common points. Um, of course, whether that takes away the the emotional tension is another question. Um, there, there's even people who argue, like Chantal Mouffe, um, that that politics should be about antagonism and uh, that it's that it's okay <laughs> to have different viewpoints mm-hmm. and that emotions should play a role in that. But that that's again like coming from political philosophy. I can bring up this point, whereas people you know, tend to have standard views about what what should be done. And here the, the question is, for example, like, yeah, sh- is consensus always a good thing? Could it be that sometimes, you know, like voicing your opinion in emotional way can actually still play a role if that means like articulating, you know, giving a voice to a certain political view? Um, could, maybe it's not always bad. So that, that gets us into an interesting discussion about like, what's the, the role of emotions in politics? And um, yeah, that shows again, like it's um, it's good to to know these theories, to also know contemporary political philosophy, as opposed to you know just knowing like ancient or or um, say uh, Hobbes or, or or Mill or something. I think in contemporary philosophy of technology, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there that we can learn from. And I, even as we were talking, I was thinking, well, we didn't even really define what we meant by emotional, right? So my view of what, what an emotional argument is in, in your view and someone else's might be very, very different because I, I'm not talking about theatrical drama necessarily. So mm-hmm. perhaps, again, one of the lessons from the work that you do is about grounding that language in in very real terms, I suppose. And, you know, this as you talked about emotion, it I started to hearken back to some of the work in New Romantic Cyborgs. And I haven't gotten through the entire book, but I, I have to say I downloaded a bunch of your stuff and I've just gone down the Mark Kugelberg rabbit hole and it's fascinating. Was some of that idea, the work in, in, in New Romantic Cyborgs, as you look at that today, how, how much of some of the core concepts do they translate today? Are they still relevant? And were you trying to also expose a little bit of that idea that when we think about technology or AI, and a lot of times even as technologists, we we talk about it as if it's a strictly rational, logical thing to do and, and that there's not any 
as you said, romanticizing or or emotion involved in it. So yeah, yeah. talk a little bit about how that concept came about and, and how you see that playing out today. Yeah. Um, I, if we take, for example, now the case of uh, Lemoine um, arguing that, you know, the, uh, an AI is sentient, conscious, um, maybe a person, I think that was, uh, you know, emotional and, and in his words, kind of religious argument. And yeah, it shows very much that, that what technology is and does, that it's not just about rationality. Because technology mm-hmm. used to be seen as, as kind of applied science and applied rationality. Uh, we put rationality in, in, in things and um, especially um, also AI, the early AI, when you put a decision tree, very logical and and you put that into um, the reasoning into into the AI. Of course, the AI is going to be rational in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the way we interact with contemporary technologies, including AI, is is different because they do imitate human-like capacities, and uh, they speak, for example, natural language processing got really indeed much better. It's very impressive, and and so. Um, it's in the interaction with, with the machines, I think, that there is still that emotional side and that, that there's also the romanticizing and, and the narrating, you know, like it was almost a story about this locked-in uh, person, a person yeah. who's locked in this technological system but cannot cannot get out, cannot cannot communicate that it's actually conscious and that person has to be saved and and that person also is going to save the world maybe you know so that's kind of almost a hollywood movie and um so there's there's a lot of romanticizing there um also if we look at um how people talk about the metaverse and what the metaverse could become it's it's very much uh, a, a romantic story i would say and, and so if, if we understand that kind of element in our culture, I think we can better understand how humans experience technology, how humans talk about technology. Um, and eventually that also shapes what the technology is going to become. Um, so for, for you know, thinking about the future of technology, you can't just say like, oh, that's all rubbish and, and um, everyone is wrong about this and we just need to interact with things. Well, it, at least one should understand what's going on, um, even if the point is that we shouldn't develop human-like AI. It's still very important to to understand what's going on between humans and machines. And there's more and more in, um, interest in that now and much more uh, research on it also. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy about that, to see that. Are you seeing more of those types of discussions, which I suppose when we try to frame all these problems in very hard, quote unquote, hard uh, or logical concepts, it, it feels somehow more concrete and, and possibly we have our own human bias towards thinking that those are more justifiable arguments. And so I, I can imagine as we start to think about or bring in, you know, some of the philosophical underpinnings or softer concepts, if you will, and I, I think they're, they're really hard concepts, so I'm wincing as I say softer concepts, but maybe more amorphous or less well-understood ideas and things that you can't just say that, that you know, that that A is A and, and B is B mm-hmm. in a very discreet way. 
are more of those conversations happening, you know, broadly, whether it's within the work that you're doing in the expert groups or within organizations, or do you still think this is the purview of, of research only? Um, I, th I think it's starting because many researchers are also going outside of academia and um, and do the work of, of communicating their understanding of things. And um, I also think that, that some of, you know, smart people in companies also understand that things are more complicated on the, the human side, on the ethics side, and so on. The problem is that often in organizations, there are other motives and other goals that take priority. And for a company, um, in this case, like Google, it can be, um, you know, interesting if people talk about their technology, you know, from, from their point of view, from a commercial point of view. Whereas, you know, from a philosophical point of view, there's lots of things going on that, that maybe, you know, uh, yeah, much more complicated and that's, that, that could be problematic. So there are all these angles to it. And um, that's, again, also where the politics comes in, I think, to, to also, it's, it's one dimension. And, and all this, I think, it makes things more complicated. You know, it complicates, it, it makes it, uh, it shows the complexity of, of things because we're, we're moving from a kind of uh, world of technology and science that's that's purified from everything else to to a world where there is the social and the human and the, the political and and those things are not you know a is not a and b is not b even if that is the case we can still use you know the the uh, human sciences and and philosophy uh, to talk about it in a, in a systematic and, and rigorous way, more rigorous than, than, let's say, just, you know, voicing opinions. But still, it's a, it's a very complex reality. And I, I think people from the world um, of technology, yeah, have to realize that, that it is like that, and that things are more messy. And, that, and also that there can be some expertise about this mess, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that there are actually people who study this, um, and, and that it's not just something soft that has to remain completely vague. Uh, but there are people who have studied this for many years. And, and so I, I think we can work together. We can work together between scientists and uh, technology people on the one hand and, and more you know, human sciences and philosophy on the other hand. Yeah, I've certainly been heartened as I watch the different collaborations across the public-private space, across academia, in commercial entities, et cetera. Although thus far, it seems to me that there's still more talking about the need for it than I've seen necessarily active and productive collaboration. I don't know if that's a, a fair yeah. assessment or not, uh, as it comes from just my tiny corner of the world. Yeah. There is, I think there's more and more collaboration but there needs to be much more time and resources to, to go into it. And much more people need to be involved. We need, we need to um, educate people so that there's, there's like a pool of people that we can rely on also to, to mediate between these different worlds and, and bring people together. Now it's, I think, just a limited number of people who can, who can do it and who are very active, uh, both in, in academia and outside, for example, in the, in the world of um, business and tech. Now, if, if we take a step back towards, you know, what we might think of as, as the more traditional political 
environment. Uh, there is certainly a lot of work going on right now at various levels to try to think about getting out in front and regulating this technology or trying to put in place some standards and guidelines that will allow us to alleviate, if not mitigate, some of the harms that we know can and and have happened with artificial intelligence systems. I'm interested in your thoughts on the overall political landscape and how, how we're doing and how some of the natural tensions that happen within that landscape are impacting our ability to regulate AI, for instance, at a national level, and then blowing that out to the global level. What are you seeing in terms of how we are able to deal with things politically today and, and the thing in this case being AI? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think the problem with new technologies like AI is always that, that regulation is always a bit behind the, the actual development. So that's a challenge everywhere. What you also see is that there's di very different kind of approaches uh, depending on the political system. If if you have a more, let's say, fair kind of system, then you know within within that culture, there won't be likely ver very heavy regulation on AI. Whereas if you if you have um, a system like in in China, for example, um, that's a very different way of dealing with uh, AI and indeed with people. Europe is somehow in in the middle there. Um, so there 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 are different political cultures, and and so they, it's it's very difficult to have one AI strategy. Uh, globally, because there are these, these differences in political sensitivities and political culture. Nevertheless, I do think that given that that AI is a global phenomenon, that, that software also moves everywhere, data move everywhere, mm -hmm. that, that in that sense, the problem is global. And I do think we need um, also a, a global approach to the governance of AI. And, and big international organizations are now also, you know, um, busy with thinking about the problem. Um, but what we don't really have is a, is a proper political framework on that level that could also be, you know, have some force rather than being just recommendations. So, yeah, I see there a, a big gap for policy. And that ha has, again, to do with the fact that we don't have many supranational institutions mm -hmm. and and the, you know there's for example the the eu is one that has a supranational aspect but it's still often the nation states that the big nation states uh, who decide and so it's, it's very difficult to um uh, at the moment you know to to have this kind of global institutions for the regulation of ai yeah it certainly seems to be a problem we haven't cracked even conceptually at the global scale. And events such as a pandemic are putting another spotlight on the difficulty of governance at all levels, globally and even nationally. One source of tension you've pointed out is the growing debate over the role of experts. Can you talk about that tension and how it could impact how AI is adopted and regulated? Yeah. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the case of COVID, we we saw that that suddenly experts play a much bigger role than they already do in in democracies, mm -hmm. 
and that also the, the democracies moved to slightly less democratic uh, sides and you know took away freedom of people and that again was then taken up by different uh, political directions to you know in response to, uh, to, to to you know put their view on it but um but i think it's an interesting phenomenon that that our democracies can go more that way in certain times and it brings up the uh, more fundamental question what kind of you know what's the role of scientific expertise and technology um, and what should should their role be in in society so with regard to ai there, there's a kind of temptation for policymakers to say like well we're, we're going to fully use ai to um, steer the behavior of citizens in beneficial directions you know whatever is uh, however that's defined <laughs> but um yeah that that brings up the the problem of freedom of course and um and it's as i explain in the book it's partly a problem of negative freedom in the sense that um yeah it, it's it's about literally taking away freedom like for example obliging people to wear a mask or something but it's also about autonomy and um, how you treat people and we see in in modern society already in in all kind of institutions like hospitals and so on so as Foucault described um, there's disciplining but there's also basically uh, not respecting the the autonomy of people so you don't take people seriously as as subjects who can reason and who can think for themselves you're you're saying like no we have to think for you and we are going to decide mm -hmm. um how to deal with this risk now and and we're going to regulate you in in this and that way so that's that's taking away a different kind of freedom you know you're not locking anyone up you're not forbidding something necessarily but you're you're treating people like yeah non-autonomous subjects like you would treat small children so there, that I also see a problem in our society, and I think that problem will get worse when, when we use much more AI to to profile people, analyze people, and then there's a temptation to then use that knowledge to steer the behavior of people, to to influence them without their knowledge, to put them in categories, to um, put them under surveillance. Then again, moving towards negative freedom again. So so um, yeah. I think the combination of AI with these tendencies in modern society uh, to not respect the autonomy of citizens, I think that there's a, definitely a danger there, uh, both ethically and politically. Um, so I try to warn for that. And it's not only about COVID, but also, for example, for when it comes to, when it comes to climate change. You know, on the one hand, I, I think it would be great if people behaved in different ways and in more climate-friendly ways. Right. We would all be in, in favor of that in, in in some sense, but but then on the other hand, the question is how you, how do you do that, and is it right to to then forbid things or to um, to manipulate people into better behavior? Um, so so I think these are big challenges for the next decades. I think to um, to use the technologies in ways that are still ethically and politically acceptable. And, and justifiable and find find a good middle way there because you know not using AI and data would also be not a good idea probably given that we have these huge political entities and mass societies but um, yeah we need to find a, a, a good way um, in, in order to prepare that we need to have the, the public discussions about 
about the politics of technology. And two quick threads I, I want to pull on. We could talk for a, a very long time and go deep on any any one of these topics and statements. Today, I know you work as a part of a number of expert groups in the EU advising on the development of policies and perspectives on how to approach these problems. We have advisory councils here in the U.S., and certainly around the world we see that. I am concerned, however, that they're not permanent establishments, are they? They're they're a point in time, and certainly we have proven over time that our individual and collective attention spans are short. Do we need to do more, or what would that look like to ensure that sort of the politics of tech, if you will, are being attended to on an ongoing basis, or will this be enough? Mm-hmm. I think it won't be enough. So what what we do now basically is that, that each time a new uh, technology comes along, we have these uh, councils and, and uh, new policies. Um, but what we really need, I think, is is for the long term, is um, as a per- permanent political institutions where experts weigh in on these issues as, as they do now, but also where um, there's, a, there's a possibility for citizens to participate in uh, the decision-making around these technologies. Um, so rather than ad hoc, you know, calling experts together or organizing some focus groups, I think we need really permanent political institutions that can uh, help us to guide us through these new times and, and um, including like how to deal with technologies like AI. Um, so we, we really need um, that more long-term vision right now already. And some of that need that you're seeing now, really the result of the nature of technologies such as AI, because people could argue we've had technologies and technologies have changed forever, right? That this is nothing new, but by virtue, as as you mentioned earlier, of having technologies that we can sometimes look at and, and see almost human characteristics of, uh, you know, logical or, or illogical, as that may be, that is our our human uh, tendency. We like to anthropomorphize stuff, but also in, in the digital age, technology is so interwoven and dispersed and distributed. Is, is that part of the reason we're coming to maybe this point where it needs to have a permanent seat at the at the table? Yes, part of the problem, I think, is that that the change is is incremental, and we're there before we know it and we don't see the the bigger picture for example um, the internet right um it kind of in a way took us by surprise not because it was installed overnight or something but just because it's slowly developed into something that that a uh, few of us could imagine so um i think given this kind of developments i think that should make us more sensitive and concerned about new technologies that that we really need to um, to think about. You know, okay, how, how might they look in the future? Like AI, we could develop scenarios about what uh, what they could do in different sectors and in different uh, parts of the world. How we could develop and uh, how we then could do it in a, in a more ethical way. Um, so we, we we need, I think, to to use our imagination, and and also somehow integrate that with with uh, with the politics of it, 
because otherwise what's happening is that um, we leave the imagination to to films and and to some of you know the ai prophets as i would call them <laughs> but there might you know their scenarios might not be the scenarios that are relevant for us in the near future and so we, we really need um yeah to do that in a different way and not just rely on on them so it's kind of you know responsible technology i think requires the responsible development of the uh, the imagination also the political imagination to make sure that we we um, have at least some idea where it's going um, and and it's not very easy it's limited technology can still surprise us just like any other developments in society but i i think we can do much better than we do now you know when we suddenly jump when when there's a new uh, a new technology again so any final thoughts or observations you'd like to leave with the audience about what you're observing today and, and what might be coming next? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we've been talking a bit about politics and, and for me now a, a big concern is, is democracy. Um, I think that mm-hmm. the, the form of government that we've been developing in, uh, in the West and also been, you know, has been uh, merged with other forms elsewhere. I think it's it's a very fragile, um, vulnerable kind of uh, political system. It's also not fully developed yet. There's a lot of work. We're not in a, in a sense we're not living in democracies yet. So there, there's there's a lot of uh, work to do there. Um, but the problem is that because of the technologies, it might be kind of overhauled or you know like changed back to more non-democratic forms uh, very easily and Mm -hmm. so if we i think what we need to do is to think about how can we make uh, our democracies more resilient against anti-democratic tendencies in general and what could the role of technology be there Uh, what needs to change in terms of technology to avoid this how can we use technologies in a way that supports rather than undermines democracy. Um, I think that's one of the questions that we, we should ask ourselves today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to restrain myself from asking you more questions about that question, and, and we'll leave it with the note and hope that we can have you back in the future to talk a little bit more about that question and others. So thank you so much for your time today. This was absolutely thought-provoking. Thanks for inviting me, Kimberly. Yes. Well, Mark has provided us some much-needed reflection on the nature of AI and even more so how political philosophy can help us understand the influence of AI on our ever, as he said, emergent society. So just want to thank you again for joining us. This is our last episode of this particular season. So if you've missed any of our stellar guests or if you want to catch up on a new favorite such as Mark, now is the time. We'll be back soon with more ponderings on the nature of AI, so subscribe now so you don't miss it.